Welcome to Gina Geeks Gems. Today I have a return guest with me. It's Claire. Welcome back, Claire. Hello. I'm glad I didn't scare you off too bad from last time. Absolutely not. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. I've already informed Claire, but this is not actually a story about Claire's family this time, but it is about a place that is very close to Claire's heart. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) It is the village in Essex called Sybil Heddingham. So, Claire, what can you tell us about Sybil Heddingham? What kind of place is it? It's um, it's a lovely little place. It's quite big compared to the village that I used to live in. And I've lived here for, well, I think it might be nearly 12 years. And now Ernie's at school, starting to get to know a few people, which is nice. So, yeah, I I don't know much about the history of the place, but it's um, a good place to live. Right. Well, do you have any comments on the intelligence of the inhabitants in Sybil Hedingham? Um Pretty mixed. Choose your words carefully, expect, Claire. <laughs> yeah, pretty mixed, as you'd expect, of a, of a country village. <laughs> as there would be in any place, I presume. <laughs> and do the people of Sybil Hedingham strike you as superstitious people? Um, no, not that I... No. I mean, lots of things go on the Sybil Hedingham Facebook page. <laughs> that is that is the main place for your news and information. Generally I need to get myself missing, on there. Yeah, missing cats and traffic lights is the uh, <laughs> most headline daily. Sounds like the place to be. Yeah. Okay, well, the reason I ask those questions will become a bit clearer later. Okay. Well, first, I'll give you a little bit of history. In the Doomsday Book in 1086, which is a very long time ago, nearly a thousand years ago now, Headingham appears as just one village. It wasn't until the reign of Henry III, which is 1216, that it was actually split into two villages, Castle Headingham and Sybil Headingham. Okay. And Sybil Headingham is said to be named after Sybil de Laverton, which is a very French-sounding name, I think, who held mm-hmm. land there in 1237. Mm. I was a bit surprised because I did think, well, I wonder what Sybil means, because a lot of times these um, village names have some kind of meaning. But it sounds mm-hmm. like it was just named after someone called Sybil. I did wonder, though, unfortunately, the presumption is always that it's a man, but I did think Sybil's a very uh, feminine-sounding name. I wonder if it could have been a, a woman, a lady who owned or who held land here in 1237, mm. which would be good. I know a lot of the land belongs to the church because uh, oh. when I went to the school one day to watch a lesson, the one of the students that was... Um, supporting the parents informed us that the school land actually used to belong to the church oh fantastic that's actually Mm. interesting and may come up again a little bit later Mm. (laughs) in a slightly different form perhaps how old is the school then at Sybil Heddingham do you know I can I I don't know does it look like an older building or does it look like yeah there's obviously parts of it that look older and then the newer parts as well so okay yeah and Claire, what do you know of witches or witchcraft? Very little. Oh, really? Unfortunately, yeah. Tell me what you do know about witches. This will be good for a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do I know? Black cats. Yeah. Um, spells and cauldrons. Pointy hats. Pointy hats. Broomsticks. That kind of thing. And do you know much about like witchcraft trials or anything like that? I'm guessing not. No, not so much, no. 
Okay, well, as I'm mentioning witchcraft, when do you think this story might take place in Sybil Heading? Around what period do you think? Um, I don't know, because we, you, you get like modern witches, can't you? Witches still good point. practice nowadays, good point. Uh, but probably not not that um, recent. I'm going to go for the 1800s. Well, you would be absolutely correct. I was kind of expecting you to go for like the 1600s or 1700s where oh. there was a bit of a an infestation of witches. Oh, in country. I did not know about that time. No. Well, in 1863, there was a widely publicised incident in Sybil Headingham involving Ooh. allegations of witchcraft. Interesting. There is a newspaper article written 100 years after the event that I want to read first because I think it sets the scene quite nicely. So in 1963, there was an article with the headline, In 1863, a Headingham witch died after a trial by swimming. By swimming? Swimming. Hmm. Do you know anything about witch swimming? No. It was kind of a way to test, a very quite fallible way, to test whether someone was a witch or not, or just an ordinary oh, member of the public. Oh, so like if they drowned or not, then... Yes. Is that... Yeah. Exactly that right. right. Yeah. Yep. And it was linked to the Christian rite of baptism, which led water to be seen as pure. Uh, so if someone had turned to the devil or away from God, the water would reject them and stop them from sinking. So by this logic, an innocent person would sink like a stone, but a mm -hmm. witch would float on the surface. So like, if you're, if you're still of God and believe in God, um, the water's like, yeah, come on, the water's fine. We welcome you when they'll drag you right to the bottom, which doesn't actually sound so positive, but it's apparently like <laughs> the water will welcome you into its fold but if you have turned your back on god the water will like try and spit you out and curse you and that's what the floating in their mind was interesting not the most um scientific way or maybe it was scientific in those times a little more history about witchcraft in england first witchcraft had reached a peak in the late 16th century particularly in southeast england which is where sybil Headingham is the Witchcraft Act was first passed in 1542, which defined witchcraft as a crime punishable by death. Mm. The laws against witchcraft were repealed in 1736, but people who claimed to be able to use magical powers could be fined or imprisoned. In 1824, Parliament passed the Vagrancy Act, under which fortune-telling, astrology and spiritualism became punishable offences. No way. Mm. So I guess the idea was they started to think, uh, people probably can't really be witches. People probably can't really, don't really have these powers. So if anyone's claiming to be able to have these powers, they're probably fraudsters, tricksters. Right. So, uh, interesting they got the Vagrancy Act, because I, I, I do wonder how much of it is also held uh, or tied to... Um, gypsies and trying to um prevent gypsies from being mm. in areas now let's go visit sybil Headingham, as it was in 1863 in spite of the modern housing development and ripper's factory 
I remind you that this article is written in 1963 and Ripper's factory is now long gone. <laughs> well, long yes. gone, maybe 10, 15 years gone, maybe. It's been gone um, for a while. Yeah, it's been out of service for a long time, but um, it's only, um, you know, a flat that we used to live in. Yes. They used to look over Ripper's yard. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, cool. the, out the back there, that was Ripper's. But now this is nothing. It's all houses there now. Oh, so just before we moved that. out the flat, they <laughs> built. Yeah, just as we moved out the flat, they'd just got the planning permission, I think. So, ah, okay, all right. In spite of the modern housing development and Ripper's factory, Sybil Headingham a hundred years ago was both a bigger and a more important place than it is today. Placed on the main road to Haverhill and Cambridge, it probably owed much of its prosperity to being a convenient coaching stage and, as is usually the case where there are busy inns, there was plenty of life. The centre of it all was almost certainly at the head of the long curving street, which culminates in the sharp rise just beyond the swan and where the street branches off to the right to the watermill. Do you know where I'm talking about, Claire? I do, yes. This is Swan Street, as you know. Yes. The street which still has its old-fashioned bow-fronted shop windows, its large houses, its inns and a stream trickling alongside the road. Sybil Headingham was something of a highway community, a place the rest of the world passed through on its journeys to and from the north. Unlike all such places, it was perhaps just a little more wicked than the more sedate communities like Castle Headingham, <laughs> tucked Ooh. away off the main highway. <laughs> what are they trying to say there? I'm not quite sure. Hmm. Among the remote villages and hamlets which surround Sybil Headingham, it is easy to believe that the inhabitants of those days were not quite as bright in their outlook and <laughs> beliefs <laughs> as some, and that there was a disinclination to cast away old superstitions. But of the little town itself, I find this less easy to accept. Certainly, Sybil Headingham was a centre to which many village lads resorted for a bit of gaiety, and no doubt they were regarded by the Headingham lads as bumpkins, for it is difficult to believe that the people living on an important traffic artery such as this could have seriously regarded witchcraft as anything but medieval nonsense. My own view is that the terrible event which took place in Sybil Headingham in the summer of 1863 and which was perpetrated by Headingham men was not so much the result of a genuine belief in witchcraft, but of an overindulgence of beer at the Swan Inn. Oh, more interesting to see what this, this is. What did they do? <laughs> has that set the scene for you then? It has set the scene. All right, well then let's find out what they did. In August 1863, the following article appeared in the Chelmsford Chronicle. At the Castle Headingham Petty Session on the 11th, Emma Smith, a married woman, respectably connected, living at Ridgewell, was charged with committing an assault upon a deaf and dumb man at Sybil Headingham. Do you know Ridgewell? I do know Ridgewell, yeah. Drive for it to get to work. Oh, really? So it's not far? Mm, not far at all. Mr Cardinal appeared for the prosecution, instructed by W.V. Folk, or Falk, Esquire. The defendant, he said, considered she had been bewitched by this poor, deaf and dumb man, and she has been to Cambridge to get the spell broken, and had afterwards gone to Sybil Headingham, where she had beaten him, and with a great many others, thrown him into the water, because, as she said, he would not take the spell from her. Sorry, so she was trying to put a spell on him, or he was trying to put a spell on her? 
she believes that this man had put a spell on her. Right. Okay. I didn't think men were witches, though. Well, they can be. Oh. Women are more predominantly prosecuted for it, but men could also be found as witches or be tried as witches. I think more recently people call them wizards. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like the male version. Like in Harry Potter, the witches and the wizards. Yeah, I guess. But I think originally witches were both men and women. Just unfortunately, women used to get targeted for it a bit more. So she thought she had been bewitched by a poor, deaf and dumb man. And she tried to get the spell broken. And then she goes to Sybil Headingham where she finds him. The poor fellow was discovered the following morning lying in a hovel and was sent off by Mr. Falk to the Halstead Union House, which is the workhouse, okay. where he was examined by the medical officer. So in those days, workhouse wasn't just for people who couldn't work and needed money. It was also like a, a hospital for poor people as well. So obviously, if you didn't have any money, you couldn't pay for a doctor. So you go Mm -hmm. to the workhouse and get some medical treatment. Sent off by Mr. Falk to the Halstead Union House, where he was examined by the medical officer, who found his body was covered with bruises. He is said to be of French origin and is known by the name of Dummy. Yes, very, very implicitly correct here, isn't it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think in this case, it may be more a reference to the fact he couldn't speak. Right, yeah. Deaf and dumb. It has been alleged that the woman is insane. <laughs> oh, I do I do love these reports in the newspapers. It has been alleged that the woman is insane, but a medical officer who had been applied to refused to certify to that effect. As defendant did not appear, the case was adjourned. Now, that doesn't mean she got off with it. It means they had to set it for another day. They had to think about it. So the woman they've charged with beating a deaf and dumb man is Emma Smith. Do you have an opinion on Emma Smith so far? Pretty bog standard name, isn't it, really? Smith. It sure is. What kind of person do you think she might be? Um, bit of a troublemaker, I think. Mm. Let's see, that's my opinion. Bit of a troublemaker. Well, I've found out a little bit about Emma Smith from genealogical records. Emma Smith, born Emma Choate was 35 years old in 1863. Oh, older than I imagined in my head. Interesting. Hmm. She was born in Ridgewell and had lived her whole life there. Emma was married to a man called George Smith and they had two daughters aged 13 and 8. Sadly, their first two children, a son and a daughter, died before they were three years old. Does this change your opinion of her at all? Just an ordinary woman? Husband? Yeah, it's very... Very different from what I expected, actually. I didn't expect her to be married with kids. Yeah, I just expected her to be a bit younger. And oh, younger. Not married, yeah. Okay. Well, a little more information about the man was given in a later newspaper. The poor old man, Dummy, who was deaf and dumb and about 80 years of age, had lived near the town of Sybil Hedingham in a small mud hut for the last eight years and had been known in the neighbourhood and in the county for a period of 20 years. But his name, the place of his birth, or his country were never known, though he was generally supposed to be a Frenchman. His habits were peculiar, and his inability to express himself otherwise than by grotesque gestures, and being also of a very excitable nature, 
caused him to be regarded by many as a person possessed of the power of witchcraft. Mm. He was in the habit of travelling about to the adjoining villages and no doubt gained his livelihood by telling fortunes and was generally consulted by the young people of the locality as to their love affairs. He usually wore two or three coats, the number of which he increased according to the heat of the weather and two or three hats of different descriptions at the same time. (laughs) Sounds like quite a jolly fellow. (laughs) Doesn't he? Quite a character. And was always accompanied by two or three small dogs. You can imagine him wandering about the neighbourhood. I can. Got anyone like that? No, unfortunately not. Just the other day you saw one walking down the street. (laughs) Yeah, no. I'll keep an eye out, though. (laughs) There might be a good Halloween costume. (laughs) He seems to have been a very inoffensive old man and was treated with great kindness by the good families of the neighbourhood as a source of merriment and amusement by the youthful and the idle. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone who was not young was idle or just the idle, not youthful people? Amongst other places, the old man went to the village of Ridgewell, a few miles distant from Headingham and there made the acquaintance of the prisoner Smith at the beer house of her husband. It seems that on the occasion of one of these visits to Ridgewell, the poor old man wanted to sleep at the prisoner's house, and on her refusing to allow him to do so, he stroked his walking stick. (laughs) Not a euphemism, (laughs) folks. (laughs) He stroked his walking stick and used other threatening signs to her as signifying his displeasure at her refusal. And although he could neither hear nor speak, he had no difficulty in understanding and making himself understood. And some of these signs, accompanied by violent gestures, were looked upon with considerable awe. Soon after this expression of the old man's displeasure, the prisoner, Emma Smith, became ill and disordered and was reduced to a low nervous condition and at once expressed her conviction that she had been bewitched by old dummy and that she would never recover. Because of his stroking of his stick. (laughs) That would would send me a bit ill. (laughs) Um, Yeah, she would never recover until she had induced him to remove the spell from her and made several applications to him for that purpose, as it would seem, without effect. So, story goes, he came to her beer house in Ridgewell. Which is a pub, right? A beer yeah, house. Is yeah, a pub, it's yeah. kind of not so much, uh, but it could literally just be someone's front room, really, in those days. It was like um, uh, anyone oh, who okay. kind of made beer could sell it. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure how they kitted out their front rooms to accommodate it, but it wasn't like a proper pub, right. like the Swan in this case. Yeah. yeah. By the time this case was picked up again at the Headingham Special Session on 25th of August, two more people were charged, Samuel Stammers and George Gibson, both of Sybil Headingham. So they wrote two more men into this. Samuel Stammers was born and raised in Sybil Headingham and was aged about 27. He was a master builder and in 1861, so in the census a couple of years before this event, he employed four men, so respectable member of the community. Yeah. He was married to a woman named Christiana, and they had two sons aged three and one. George Gibson was aged 31, so not too much older, and at the time working as a bricklayer. He was married to Elizabeth, 
and they had two daughters aged eight and five. So just regular people, Claire. Regular Sybil Heddingham residents. Yeah. What could happen? At this point, poor Dummy was still in the Halstead Union Workhouse. So this is the 25th of August. So nearly a month, three weeks after he was beaten by Emma Smith. Um, he's still in the workhouse. According to the medical officer's assistant, he was suffering from bruises upon the arms, head and shoulders and from bronchitis recently contracted. She did a good job then. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like quite the beating. (laughs) He was now confined to his bed and in very great danger, although not absolutely in dying circumstances. After three hours of inquiry, they ended up discharging Gibson, but according to the Essex Standard, the chairman directed Mrs Smith to be retained in custody and stammers to find two sureties of £50 each and himself in £50 or to remain in custody. Mm. What's a surety? Sureties were men of property who posted a bond to guarantee the convict's future good behaviour. So basically, stammers needed to find two people who were willing to vouch for him and cough up 50 quid each, a bit like bail money, and he also had to find 50 quid himself. Okay. That was a lot of money back then. Yes, very much. I presume they got it back if they attended court, would you say? I don't really know how that that works. Mm. I know a bit too much more about American software television and things like that than I do UK. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not really sure. I've seen like Bounty Hunters. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's the same thing though, is it? It's like some (laughs) they say 200,000 and surely they're not going to have 200,000 like forever. It's just to make sure that. Yeah, if he doesn't show get up, them to... yeah, then they have to they have mm. to relinquish the two hundred grand. That's my understanding, anyway. Unfortunately, Claire, dummy took a turn for the worse. Oh no! And by the time the case was heard again at the September twenty second petty sessions, he had died. Oh, couldn't he have done some witchcraft on himself to fix him? Fix him up? Ah, so you're assuming he was a witch. Well, if he was, then surely that would have happened. So maybe he isn't. She's got it all wrong. It's even more modern than swimming. If he can fix himself <laughs> up, he's a witch. If he can't, he wasn't. Exactly. Exactly. Same same thing. Yeah, you would you would think maybe he'd be able to help himself a bit more if he if he had these special powers. Oh, yeah. His death was actually registered under the name Dummy. No surname, just Dummy. Oh. Yeah, they didn't know anything about him. Didn't know where he came from. Didn't know how old he was. Where was he buried? It's a very good question. I presume wherever people who died in the Halstead Union Workhouse were buried, and I will find that out as best I can. Mm. I'll get back to you on that. Right. On his death certificate, it says he died of fever and pneumonia. So he suffered fever for a Mm. month and then pneumonia for the last three weeks, and it's developed into a pneumonia. So Dummy's dead. Things are looking decidedly worse for Emma Smith and Samuel Stammers. Oh, is she going to get done for murder now? Mm. She? Well, so I'll give you a quick timeline recap. So the incident happened, so where poor Dummy was beaten and swum in the river, yeah. which I'll give you more details of soon, uh, was the 3rd of August, 1863. Dummy was sent to the Halstead Union Workhouse the next day. They had the Castle Heading and Petty Session, so when we first found out about this, was the 11th of August when Emma Smith was charged. 
then the Headingham special sessions at the 25th of August, Gibson was discharged and Smith and Stammers got sent to the Chelmsford jail until the March assizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Dummy died on the 4th of September. So it's happened in a month, basically. Yeah. So by now, little Sybil Headingham was in all the papers, not just all over the UK and Great Britain, but it was even discussed in the New Zealand and Australian newspapers. I presume probably even in America, but I don't have access to American newspapers. No, in the New York Times or anything? I don't have access (laughs) at the moment, but maybe someone can send me a news article if they find one about it. But the most complete account of the evidence given in the Petty Sessions I found is actually from the Mercury, a Tasmanian newspaper, so in Australia. It lays out what happened that night. The Extraordinary Case of Witchcraft at Henningham. Today, Emma Smith, 36, and Samuel Stammers, 28, were placed at the bar before Mr. Bernardiston and a full bench of magistrates sitting in petty sessions at Castle Headingham, charged by Superintendent Elsie with having unlawfully assaulted an old Frenchman called Dummy on the night of the 3rd of August and thereby caused his death on the 4th instant. Whereabouts in Castle Headingham were they? In, a, in the castle? I think the petty sessions were held at this time at the Bell Inn in Castle Headingham. Ah, there is a pub called The Bell, so maybe it was there. I would imagine that's probably the same one. Is it still in business? Still in business, still opening, oh, yeah. Oh, we'll have to go and check it out. We can be where the trial or the, the petty sessions happened. Yeah, we might sit in the same room as they were many years ago. Oh, yeah, wouldn't that be cool? Mm. From the extraordinary circumstances connected with the case, the greatest interest was manifested in the proceedings and the court was crowded. The female prisoner is the wife of a beer shopkeeper in the village of Ridgewell, about six miles from Headingham, and Stammers is a master carpenter in a small way of business. It is a somewhat singular fact, so a unique fact, that nearly all of the 60 or 70 persons concerned in the outrage, which resulted in the death of the deceased, were of the small tradesman class and that none of the agricultural labourers were mixed up in the affair. So basically, it wouldn't have been a surprise if it was these stupid agricultural labourers. These were tradesmen. Mm. It's also strange. There's a few things I find strange. Firstly, that they're doing being done for murder because he had pneumonia. So what's that got to do with her beating with him a stick? And secondly, why, if it's a murder, why is it only a a small claims court rather than a big court. Ah, well, I believe I can help with that. The idea is more about the fact that would he have died had they not hit him with a stick and pushed him in the river? Mm. Had it not been for their actions, would he have still been alive? Mm-hmm. Right. That's why they've come to this petty session, to see whether it's something that needs to be taken to trial, which would be right. the assizes, which would happen Just of their Johnson. actions, their actions then caused that, right? Rather than like them actually outright killing him, it's whether they what they've done has then led to yeah, that. yeah. It's like can can this be solved in petty sessions or does this need to be yeah. sent somewhere higher? It is also stated that none of those engaged were in any way under the influence of liquor, which I find pretty hard to believe. I just feel like this happened at a pub, and 
someone was bound to be drinking <laughs> yeah especially back back in those days like everyone just used to drink beer and wine all the time didn't they it was just yeah like, yeah it was safer than water yeah exactly yeah and there's exactly. 60 or 70 persons concerned surely one of them was yeah. drinking otherwise the swan would have been very annoyed with all these people just not even drinking in their establishment yeah. so i'm not Absolutely. sure how true that is but they're claiming they were or maybe they just mean that they weren't too much under the influence of they them. weren't all hammered <laughs> there wasn't a riot going on <laughs> the whole disgraceful transaction arose out of a deep belief in witchcraft which possesses to a lamentable extent the tradespeople and the lower orders of the district so not not the rich people not these clever intelligent better class of people just these hickeys who need to work for a living <laughs> The victim of this superstition was a deaf and dumb Frenchman whose age was about 80. Some persons suppose him to have been about 86 years. Being unable to express himself and being of a somewhat vivacious disposition, he was accustomed to make use of energetic and somewhat grotesque gestures, which were taken by the rustics generally as carbalistic and diabolical signs. Uh, carbalistic means like secretive or mysterious and diabolical like of the devil sorry is diabolical changed um meaning or does it still mean work no, with the devil that's still the root of it yeah like if you think about that's it what, what context you might use it oh it's diabolical like meaning it's driving you crazy or it's yeah know. it's like absurd yeah yeah the devil must have created this because it's Ooh. horrible is that's my understanding of it and he was consequently regarded for some time past with considerable awe. So he wasn't just an ordinary bloke. He was something secretive and mysterious. He was different. <laughs> if we know anything about Dummy, he was a different kind of bloke with his three coats and hats and dogs. Ooh, the power of three. Ooh. He lived alone in a wretched hut. Who the unfortunate Frenchman was or whence he came cannot now be ascertained. For the last seven or eight years, he resided in Sybil Headingham, and previous to that, he lived in Braintree. There is little doubt that he gained his living to a great extent by telling fortunes, if not by pretenses to witchcraft. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Some hundreds of scraps of paper were found by the police in his hut after his death and upon most of them were written questions which neither in their style nor their subject matter say much for the enlightenment of the district. There we go, go again. Trying mm. to cast aspersions on the intelligence of the good people of Sybil Headingham. The following are fair samples. Her husband have left her many years, and she want to know whether he is dead or alive. What was the reason my son do not write? I mean that soldier. Do you charge any more? The answer to this query was doubtless satisfactory, for this momentous question was then put, shall I ever marry? Love letters from girls to their sweethearts were also found, with shall I marry and how many children shall I have, written in pencil on them. The most businesslike of all the notes was the curt one, did you say we killed your dog? If you did, I will send for the policeman. Which doesn't quite sound so much as a question, more of a threat. More of a threat. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Nor were his patrons altogether confined to the lower orders. 
one letter states that the lady was coming herself on Monday to see you and she gave you all them things and the shilling. <laughs> Sounds like it wasn't written by the lady, but obviously one of her, her lower classes, one of her workers, I suppose. In the hovel were found, besides, between 400 and 500 walking sticks. That's a lot of walking sticks. That is a lot of walking sticks. They're not all going to stroke themselves. <laughs> they are not, no. <laughs> Maybe you wore them out from all them sinister stroking of them. Uh, so 400 and 500 walking sticks, a quantity of umbrellas, some French books, a number of tin boxes, some foreign coins, chiefly of the French Empire, and about a ton of rubbish, which it was found impossible to classify in the inventory that was taken. So obviously they had to write a list of everything they found in his hovel and they gave up because there was so much crap. Maybe like when he walked the streets of Sybil, he just picked up everything that he found and just took it home. Possibly. Possibly. Like a, a 19th century hoarder. Mm. I suppose if you live in a mud hut, you're probably going to try and hold on to anything you've got. You haven't got a yeah. lot to mm. your name. The most definite ideas about the man have been suggested by the following questions, which were found written seriatim, like in a series, on a scrap of paper. Were you born at Paris? The name of the town where you were born? Where was your tongue cut out? Which obviously explains why he was deaf or dumb, I should say. <laughs> Doesn't explain at all why he was deaf. Le nom de votre ville, which may not be pronounced correctly, but I believe means the name of your village or town. Uh, the answers were no doubt made by signs. So obviously it, this indicates to me that he could read mm. and possibly not write. I wonder, because, you know, like places are twinned with somewhere. Oh, yeah. Still so Hedigam is twinned with somewhere in France. So I wonder mm. if that's got anything to do with it. Oh, that's interesting. From where he might have come from. Yeah, but then again, they don't they don't know where don't know where he come from. <laughs> yeah, so they couldn't after the fact then say, "Hey, we should twin with you because some old deaf and dumb guy came yeah. from your town." But that would be really cool if it was. Or I've come to this town because that's where I'm twinned with. <laughs> yeah, I don't think twinning was such a thing until more recent times. Oh, okay. I'm not sure when it started to happen, but I think it's just more of a like a a recent invention. Mr. Cardinal appeared to conduct the prosecution against the prisoners, and Mr. Jones defended Stammers. Mrs. Smith was undefended. So poor old Mrs. Smith obviously can't afford representation, whereas obviously Stammers had a, a bit more means. Stammers mm. was a very respectable-looking man. The female prisoner appeared faint and was accommodated with a chair. Mr. Cardinal, in opening the case, said the circumstances of the acts which had led to the death of the deceased man appeared to him to constitute the crime of murder. Most of the witnesses were singularly unwilling to give evidence, but he thought that he should be able to show that the crime was one of the gravest kind, but it would be for the bench to decide upon what charge the prisoners should be committed for trial. I should point out, though, it doesn't say too clearly in this article, it, but I've read many, many articles about this incident. Uh, there was some kind of discussion or mention made of the fact that uh, the townspeople were giving statements or saying things and then taking it back and or not committing to uh, say it in court, at least. Mm. So that, I think that's what they're alluding to there. 
The first witness called was John Pettit, a shoemaker living at Sybil Headingham. He saw an old man called Dummy about 11 o'clock on the night of the 3rd of August at the Swan Inn at Sybil Headingham. He was then in his usual health. About 40 or 50 persons were in the tap room, which I believe is probably the main bar. Stammers and Emma Smith were there. Emma Smith said that she had been in a bad state for nine or ten months and she attributed her ailing to being bewitched by Dummy. She said it was all through what Dummy had done to her. She said that he was a witch. She asked him, Dummy, to go home with her to Ridgewell and she told him that she would give him three sovereigns and would use him well. I should point out here that she is not asking Dummy to prostitute himself. <laughs> I mean, whatever floats her boat. An 86-year-old man is what she wants. Yeah, she likes a bit of strange. Who are we to judge? <laughs> uh, but meaning that I think she hoped that um, because she believes that she had been bewitched or cursed by him for not letting him stay, that if she has him stay over, that he'll remove the curse. But it seems like Dummy's not having any of it. What sort of curse, I wonder, he put on her? Like, what? how... What happened to her to make her think that she was cursed? Well, it said that she had been ill for nine or ten months. So I think after she refused him, she was started it? to become ill. Yeah. And she thinks it was due to him. Mm. When this was told, so she's going to give him three sovereigns and come to my place. Everything will be okay. When this was told to the old man, he refused and drew his finger across his throat. He meant he would rather have his head cut off or his throat cut than go. Witness saw a man named Gibson dancing about with Dummy and Gibson fell on him. Which indicates to me right there that there probably was some liquor involved that they claim there wasn't. Yeah. Gibson as well was the bloke we mentioned before who was charged um, with stammers after and then was discharged. So they decided obviously they didn't have enough evidence against him. Yeah, so he was dancing with him and fell on him. Shortly afterwards, Witness saw the old man sitting outside the swan. Mrs Smith was there, urging him to go home with her. He refused, upon which she caught hold of his coat and began to drag him towards the brook, about two rods off. I looked into this. A rod is about five metres. So about ten metres away was this brook. And this brook is still there, if you imagine it is picture where the swan is. It's right next yep. to it. Witness thought they both fell into the water, but he could not see well on account of the persons that interfered with the view. He presently saw Dummy on his hands and face in the brook, which was deep there. Someone said, he is trying to get out on the other side. I've read that in an accusing way. It could be saying, he's trying to get out on the other side. Or I took it to be like, he's trying to get out on the other side. Like, quick, stop him. Yeah, yeah that, that's how I interpreted it anyway. Mrs. Smith then crossed the bridge, and as he was trying to get out at the other side, she pushed him back into the water. She pushed him back a second time. Afterwards, Dummy got out. Witness saw the prisoner Stammers standing at the side where the man was first thrown in. Witness did not see him do anything, nor what became of him. There were so many people about, witness could not see. When the man got out, he went and sat on a heap of stones opposite the Swan Inn. Mrs Smith appeared anxious to get him to the water again or to go home with her. 
which I think is a very odd way to try and persuade someone to go home with you. Yeah. Come home with me. I won't do any harm. Well, I'm already harming you. It's a bit, a bit of a strange strategy that she yeah. undertook. She struck him several times across the shoulders and arm with a stick. She struck him once on the head and witness, who was John Pettit, said to her, don't hit him with a stick, especially on the head. Which sounds an odd way, an odd way to say it. I'm not sure if it came out exactly like that, but that's what he says. She was partly behind him. She said she would not hurt him on any account. I'm not sure I believe her. Witness mm -hmm. heard the blow. She laid the stick down and began to kick him. She kicked him on the side. Witness asked her not to do so, and she said she should not hurt him as her boots were thin and soft. <laughs> I, I would imagine being Ridiculous. yeah being, being kicked without shoes is painful enough like why would it yeah if your boots are soft thin and soft probably doesn't hurt maybe doesn't hurt her 50 <laughs> persons were standing by and stammers was there a number of persons mrs smith dummy and the crowd went down watermill lane now Watermill Lane, I had a bit of trouble trying to locate definitively, but it does seem to be what's now called Alderford Lane or Alderford. Yeah. Lane or Road, Street. Um, Streets. Which is yeah. named after the mill, which is at the end of that lane. Yeah. So I think it's the same road. I think it's the same street that's there now, just named differently. Mm -hmm. Witness heard that Dummy was carried. The brook ran down the side of the lane to the river and was deep there. The street was full of people. Witness heard a woman's voice say, put him or swim him on the millhead. The millhead, from what I can gather from my, my minimal research into mills, water mills, it was the part, of, the part where the water goes into the water wheel. Right. That's my understanding of it. I may be wrong. Willing to be corrected. Witness then heard a splash in the river and went down to sea. He saw Dummy in the water and Stammers was in the act of lifting him out of the water. Mrs. Brutie was helping him. Mrs. Smith was standing close by. Witness asked, who did it? Mrs. Smith said, a drunken man fell into the ditch. Mrs. Brutie and Stammers crossed the road and laid Dummy upon the grass. The water appeared to be in his throat, and he was quite wet. He lay on the grass ten minutes or a quarter of an hour. He appeared so weak that without help he could not have got up. He afterwards went back towards the swan, leaning on the wall for support. He knocked at the door of Mr. Amos the butcher, who refused to let him in. From what I can gather, the, Mr. Amos lived either side of the swan. So there's two buildings either side of the swan. I'm not sure which one, but he seemed to live in one of those. Hmm. That's also where the bronchitis would have come from as well, being chucked exactly. in the river, getting all the water mm -hmm. into his lungs. Ultimately, Mrs. Brutie and another woman helped him to his hut, witness following. Witness recommended him to change his clothes and he kissed Witness's hands. Witness left him. He appeared much exhausted and was in a very different state from what he had been when Witness first saw him at the swamp. 
by Mr. Jones. So this is in response to questions by Mr. Jones. The brook was two or three yards wide. The depth of water where deceased was flung in at first was only three inches and the bottom was stony. Witness did not see Stammers ill-treat him. Witness saw no one hurt or kicked deceased besides Mrs. Smith, except a little girl named Garrod, whom Witness told not to kick him. But she did not hear him. She did not hurt deceased much. The girl Garrod, I should say it's her last name, <laughs> not her first name, the girl Garrod, it should be here mentioned, is almost the only witness who deposed before the coroner willingly to the circumstances which transpired on the night in question. Witness cross-examined by Mr. Cardinal. Had never stated before that Garrod had kicked deceased. He did not think it of sufficient importance. Henrietta Garrod said that she was 10 years of age. She lived with her mother at Sybil Hedingham. On the night of the 3rd of August, she went to the Swan for some supper beer. What do you think supper beer is? Mm, like a food replacement? Yeah. Maybe? Or an after, an, like an after dinner <laughs> like <an after> <laughs> <Yeah>. beer? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't actually know. It could, it could mean either. Could it like a, a beer that you have with your supper? Or, yeah, or instead of some kind of food. Not sure. She went into the tap room and stood on a form to see them twisting old dummy about. Gibson twisted him about and they fell. Dummy fell on Gibson first. Gibson then turned him about again and fell on him. Witness was there an hour and a half when her mother came for her and took her home. Her mum <laughs> sent to get this supper beer. <laughs> an hour and a half. An hour and a half later. <laughs> Where's this, where this girl? I mean, at 10 years of age. Yeah. Well. yeah she's... <laughs> She'll come to no good, that girl. About <laughs> half an hour afterwards, witness heard a noise at the swan and ran down to see what was the matter. Dummy was coming out of the swan and Mrs Smith was with him. She asked him to go home with her, but he twice refused and drew his hand across his throat. She asked several people to give her a stick and as no one gave her one, she took Dummy's stick from the window and hit him <laughs> twice across the top of the head with it Oh. And several times on the shoulders and arms. He got beaten by his own <laughs> stick as well. That's, that's not okay. That's the it? biggest insult. Bad enough being beaten with a stick. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. One yeah. of his 400, 500 sticks. She had first taken his hat off and flung it into the water. She said, you old devil, you served me out and I will serve you out. Now, I had to look this up because it's... Uh, an expression not familiar to me. Do you know what did it serve you out? You served me out. No, like I, I don't know. No, I could like guess it like caught caught him out or like done something bad one way. So. Yeah, yeah. Like know. you've done me wrong, so I'm gonna do you wrong. I'm gonna get my, you know, gonna yeah, take exactly. Revenge. Yeah, 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 yeah. He tried to get hold of her clothes. She dragged him to the brook and shoved him in. He tried to get out on the other side. Then Samuel Stammers ran through the brook to the other side and pushed him in again. So I don't think the witness said that, did he? The other witness. Oh, no, he didn't. He just said that Stammers just stood there. Yeah, and took him out even. But yeah, Samuel Stammers ran through I was the thinking, I was thinking that Stammers was innocent. Like, oh, he hasn't done nothing wrong. Yeah. He was just guilty by association, but clearly not. Yeah, and now we can see why he was 
charged with it. Mm. Dummy got out and went to the stone heap and sat down. Oh. Mrs. Smith asked someone to lift him up. Stammers lifted him up and the old man walked down towards the watermill. Stammers and <laughs> walked down towards, it sounds like they, didn't the other witness say dragged him down to the watermill base? I don't think he had much say in it. Mm. Stammers and Smith holding his shoulders. Yeah, so they're kind of guiding him towards the watermill. In some way, he got onto the ground and shuffled himself and made a growling noise. Oh, I feel so sorry for him. I do too. I, I guess they would say he was making like a, a devilish noise or something, but he was mm. probably just in pain or just a, like, oh, what's happening to me? Mrs. Smith got hold of the collar of his coat, which came up and covered his head, and she dragged him along the road. Someone helped her. See, Mrs. Smith, this Emma's not sounding such a nice person anymore to me. Mm. Sounding a little bit <laughs> unkind. I thought that maybe they were unkind to her because she was less well off, but it sounds like she wasn't very nice. Someone helped her. They dragged him to the side of the sluice water. It was a girl larger than witness that helped her. So it, I don't know who it was, but she was bigger than me. Mrs. Smith then caught hold of Dummy's shoulders and stammers of his legs and they threw him into the sluice. I think you're probably seeing now why they may have been <laughs> suggesting that Smith and stammers were responsible. Yeah. For death. Yeah. The water covered him and witness could only see his arms. Witness could not recognise many that were there, though there were a great number because she was looking at old Dummy. Stammers jumped in and got Dummy out of the water and laid him on the grass. Dummy tried to get the nasty mud and the water out of his throat. Stammers assisted him to the swan gates. Dummy then went to Mr Amos and held up his arms to show that his sleeves were all torn. Oh. I know. He had tears in his eyes and was green and muck wet all over. Mrs. Harrison and Mrs. Bruty then helped him on his way home. He was shivering with cold and wet. Cross-examined by Mr. Jones. She was not sure it was Stammers who raised Dummy on his feet and walked with him to the sluice, but she thought it was Stammers. Witness never kicked Dummy. Pettit never told her not to kick at him. Don't know why that's important to the prosecution. Well, they keep wanting to make their point. The witness who gave her evidence with remarkable self-position, so she remember she's only 10, was severely cross-examined, but upon irrelevant matters which had nothing to do with the point at issue, and her testimony was unshaken. Yay, well done, Henrietta Garrett. You did well. Yeah. For a 10-year-old. George Jenkinson, barber at Sybil Headingham, said that he knew the deceased for a long time. Deceased was in his usual health in the tap room on the 3rd of August. He jumped about something like dancing. <laughs> so we've gone from de definitely dancing to something like dancing. And Gibson fell on him. Mrs. Smith told the people he had bewitched her. The witness generally corroborated the other witnesses with respect to the acts of Mrs. Smith, but he was sure of nothing about Stammers as he took no interest in the matter. He's like, yeah, Smith definitely did all this. So, yeah, I agree with everything they're saying. I don't know about Stammers. Couldn't possibly say. Not interested. He heard Mrs. Smith say, come and help me together. I cannot get him in alone. 
Afterwards, someone said, if someone do not take the old man out, he will be dead in a minute. Witness saw Stammers take the old man out in consequence. So it looks like they only took him out when someone else said, you're killing him. Get him out of there. Well, at least someone was standing up for him. They're supposed to be well-liked, isn't he? So I'm surprised more people yeah. didn't. Oh, yeah. Edward Hickford of Sybil Headingham, a barber, also deposed to the acts of Mrs. Smith. Stammers shoved deceased into the water of the brook when he, deceased, tried to get out after being first flung in. Deceased was then kept a quarter of an hour muddling in the water. So that's that's a bit more detail. So they kept him in the water for 15 minutes. So was it September? So August. Luckily, it wasn't winter. Maybe that's why they thought it wouldn't harm him that much. It's middle of summer still. When she struck him laughing as hard as he ever did in the shoulders with a stick, he burst out his life. And it says in brackets, laughter. I think they're saying that's laughter of people in the court. Maybe he was trying to be defiant, like kind of try and not show fear mm. at this point. Yeah. In Mill Lane, witness did not see Stammers do anything to hurt deceased. What Stammers did at the brook did not hurt the old man. So more defence for Stammers. Mr. Cardinal said he would now produce evidence as to ill treatment inflicted on deceased in the Swan public house. Mr. Jones objected that any such violence was only alleged to have been inflicted by a man named Gibson and could not affect his client. Ultimately, the bench decided upon hearing the evidence in question. George Amos, butcher, said that he was in the Swan on the night in question. Dummy was there sitting on a stool. Gibson took him around the waist and danced him around the room. Witness said, do not treat the old man so. People say he is a witch, but he is not a witch more than I am. <laughs> I don't know if that's paraphrasing. I'm not sure he, he made such a statement in the Swan Inn on the night in question. But I can imagine him saying, don't treat him that way. Dummy and Gibson fell and witness went out. Dummy did not like it, but he was a man that saw a great deal of company and witness did not know, but he might have liked it. Smith and several others were present. Witness afterwards said to Stammers, have nothing to do with that old man, for somebody will come to trouble about it. Whether through him or whether through witchcraft, who knows? Mr Sinclair, surgeon to the Halstead Union, said that on Thursday the 5th of August, the deceased was brought in. There were bruises on the shoulders. He pointed to indicate that he was hurt on the back of the head and shoulder and the left side. In a day or two afterwards, indications of a chest affection showed themselves. There was inflammation of the lungs and bronchitis. Death took place on the 4th of September. The post-mortem examination showed that there was total disorganisation of the lungs. Wow. That sounds pretty traumatic. <laughs> it does. <laughs> that the kidneys were diseased and that there had been recent inflammation of the brain. Wow. Death was attributable to those causes combined, but more especially to the disease of the lungs and kidneys. Interesting they say all this, but then on the death certificate just says fever and pneumonia. Yeah. No lung disorganisation to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> they skipped over that bit. <laughs> Having heard the whole evidence just given, he was of opinion that the treatment deceased had received gave rise to a great shock to the system, producing fever, which set up the causes which resulted in death. The immersion in the water and sleeping in wet clothes would produce fever. The blows described had not, in his opinion, caused death, 
He had no doubt whatever that death resulted from the treatment deceased received. Of course not. Mm. <laughs> Him being the doctor and all. <laughs> yeah. Mr. A. Meggett, surgeon, entirely concurred with Mr. Sinclair as to the cause of deceased's death. James Drury, innkeeper at Sybil Headingham, of the Swan, I should imagine, deposed to deceased being pulled about in the Swan by Gibson. Stammers was present. Mr. W. V. Falk said that on the 4th of August, he heard of deceased. I should say Mr. W. V. Falk was um, quite instrumental in this. He was a, one of the upper, upper men of the village. And he seemed to be instrumental in actually getting dummy help. Mr. W. V. Falk said that on the 4th of August, he heard of deceased having been ill-used and he went to his hut. The old man lay on some straw, trembling. He was wet and covered with slime and stank with stagnant mud. Mm. There was mud on his head. Mm. (laughs) Witness got assistance and undressed him. He screamed with pain. On his shoulders were large black bruises. Remember her saying, I shouldn't hurt him at any rate. Witness got him tea and brandy. And the next day, witness saw Superintendent Elsie and had deceased sent to Halstead Union. Witness was one of the guardians of the poor. Mr. Cardinal said that he could produce several other witnesses, but he did not think it would strengthen the case for the prosecution, as every one of them alleged that they had just turned their heads aside at the moment deceased was flung into the sluice. (laughs) How convenient. And therefore did not see Stammers in the act. So. (laughs) A lot of rallying around Stammers. Mr. Jones then addressed the bench on behalf of his client Stammers. He complained that Stammers had been badly treated by the prosecution because though out on bail on the charge of assault, he had been arrested on the more serious charge under a warrant on Saturday last instead of being allowed to surrender. Not sure what difference that would make. The case against Stammers rested solely upon the testimony of the girl Henrietta Garrett, which he contended was not reliable. She had on the last occasion stated that she had gone to Mr Warburton's school. Today, she swears, she then said she had never gone to the school. He would call a witness to prove the contrary, but as the magistrate, Mr Magendi, himself recollected the fact, he would not produce any evidence on that point, and he was certain that no weight would be attached now to her statements. Poor 10-year-old girl into disrepute. The chairman said that the bench had resolved to send both prisoners for trial at the next assizes. So obviously realized we've got we've got enough here. We need to send them. Yeah, this is this is above our heads. Yeah. (laughs) They need to go. The prisoner, Emma Smith, was then formally asked what she had to say why she should not be committed for trial. She replied in a peculiar voice and evidently under the influence of some superstitious fear that she would tell the truth. Deceased came to her house first. He spat upon her and told her that after a time she should be ill and she was ill. So this is what she's saying. Mm. A doctor came to her twice in one night but could not cure her. The man, dummy, came to her shop ten months ago and asked leave to sleep in her shed. She let him, but in a few days when she wanted him to leave, he made signs and wrote up on a door that she should be ill in 10 days. He made her ill and bewitched her, and she went everywhere, but no one could set her right again. 
She was afraid for no medicine could do her any good. The chairman. Are you aware of the nature of the charge against you that you caused the death of the old man by your conduct on the 3rd of August? The prisoner. That night? I will tell you the truth. I won't I won't do the peculiar voice. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my voice might be peculiar enough. That night, I went to the swan very bad. I went up to the old gentleman and asked him to go home with me to do me good. He said he would not go. Gibson took him up and put him in my face to kiss me, but I did not want him to do that as I had a husband of my own. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, she'd be well up for it. <laughs> oh, dear. A number of platters of straw for bonnets came in and said, how bad this woman is. Not sure how bad this woman is. I don't know if she's saying that in defense of herself or, you know, like, oh, she's in a bad way. Like she said she went there bad, meaning unwell, whether they're saying how unwell she is. Who knows? There were 40 or 50 people there, few of them men. They got him out. Some stoned him. Some shoved him into mud and did more to him than I did. I begged and prayed that he would go home with me, but he said he would not unless he liked. I do not deny that I put my hand to his head, but I was so bad I could not lift a dog. And this man here, Stammers, took him by the heels and threw him in the water, and then he, Stammers, jumped in and got him out. I may die any moment. There was but one there who did not touch him, and that was Mrs. Brutey, who said she was afraid of him. That is the truth. Stammers simply said he was not guilty. <laughs> He didn't go in for all that explanation. Yeah, he was just like, no, it weren't me. Didn't do nothing. <laughs> yeah. The, the defence rests. The chairman said it was a fearful and a disgraceful fact that at the present day an old and mutilated man should meet with such a fate and that no one of all the crowd of men and women present should have interfered to save him or even have told the police of what was going forward. Here, here. The prisoners stood committed to Chelmsford Jail for trial at the March Assizes. Bail was accepted afterwards for Stammers, himself in £30 and two sureties for £50 each. Similar bail would have been taken for the female prisoner, but as it could not be procured, she was conveyed to prison. So couldn't afford to come up with the bail. So got sent to prison to await mm. trial. What do you think now after hearing all that? Well, it's tricky, isn't it? I think I'm inclined to believe young Henrietta, or whatever her name was, the mm -hmm. 10-year-old. Henrietta Garrett. Um, yeah. I think that um, Emma is guilty. Mm -hmm. And I think Stammers, even though not quite as much, played him as much part as Emma, is still as guilty. I think he just saw a bit of a commotion going on and thought it'd be a laugh to get involved. Yeah, it does seem to be trying to egg the crowd on. Yeah, but I don't I don't think he was yeah, I don't think he's as guilty as Emma, but I think he still played a part, which is basically yeah, what he did. He did keep him in the water as well though, didn't he? That's the other yeah. thing. Stammers oh sorry, dummy could have got out had Stammers not kept him in the water. If you remember they yeah. said um he's trying to get out the other side. And Stammers ran through the brook and like pushed him back in again. Yeah, you know, like when these people like the sees a fight and just likes to get mm. involved. I'm like, go on, yeah. hit him, hit him, just because yeah. they like that sort of action. Yeah. He seems like that kind of bloke. That's what I'm getting from this. 
and again like maybe it, it also shows itself in the fact that people won't speak against him he's obviously a bit of a character in the village yeah. uh, like a bit of a, a ringleader mm. and also that river is very scummy uh, i mean i wouldn't <laughs> allow early to play in it so it's no surprise that he got really ill from being in the water because it is pretty pretty grimy even to this day even to this day <laughs> it's, it's thought the people of sibyl hedigan would have sorted it out by now hmm. right on to the essex lent assizes where mm. the trial was held at chelmsford before chief justice earl on tuesday the 8th of march 1864 emma smith a middle-aged woman of singularly repulsive appearance <laughs> Oh, crikey, she's really going downhill, isn't she? Yeah, it's very amusing, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? That back when it started, she was described as uh, respectably connected. Yeah, now she's going right, yeah. right down. That's the guilt taking part, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, made her haggard. Yeah, now yeah. they're describing her as a middle-aged woman of singularly repulsive appearance. <laughs> and Samuel Stammers, a well-attired and respectable-looking man... Again, the, the disparity between the way they, mm. they refer to these people. Surrendered to take their trial on an indictment charging them with the manslaughter of a man known only by the cognomen of Dummy at Little Headingham on the 3rd August last. Little Headingham, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. It's a London paper, so maybe they just misread. Mm, it's like Sybil, it can't be right, it must be Little. <laughs> yeah, true, yeah, that must mean what they meant. <laughs> The female prisoner had to be assisted into the dock and remained throughout the protracted inquiry in a perfectly helpless condition. Dear me. She's obviously she's not well, no. either mentally or physically. Obviously, she's what happens. Out, yeah, obviously pointing out that she was she was very weak in many ways. Right. Now, I'm not going to read all of the trial because it plays out quite similarly to the quarter sessions so i'll just be kind of going over it there's some differences in the testimony but basically we've got the idea of what, of what happened could you recap for us claire uh yep so there was um a, a gathering at the swan and um the uh emma went to find dummy because he had uh put a cast a spell on her to make her poorly because she wouldn't let him sleep in his shed in her shed uh, and she was trying to like say come and sleep in my shed and get rid of this curse for me please and he was like nope i'm <laughs> not doing that i'd rather cut off my own head <laughs> yeah, yeah. and sleep in your shed um so yeah so she wasn't happy about that um with the help of stammers chucked him in the river then beat him with a stick and then took him down to the mill and chucked him in the river there yeah basically it's uh what's happened so far well done claire that was a very good summary but, uh, but she's she's claiming that she didn't actually she wasn't trying to hurt him <laughs> yeah, yeah. just beating him with a stick for surely not goodwill yeah, i am a weak <laughs> woman with thin boots and was it thin and soft boots yeah but anyway so i'm not going to read out the whole trial but i do want to read out the judges summing up Yes. So this was in the Essex Standard. After a few minutes' consultation, the jury found both prisoners guilty. His lordship, in passing sentence, said, Prisoners at the bar, you have been convicted of this felony. You used violence, which caused the death of a fellow creature, helpless in his old age, helpless in his infirmity, 
and upon the evidence nobody can doubt that that violence hastened his end. I don't make these observations with the view of aggravating your present position. The motives which led you to act as you did may have been conceived in ignorance, and in some parts may yet be shared in by others. But although there is no punishment for ignorance, I am bound to pass such a sentence as may show to others that where these superstitious prejudices are entertained, they must not be carried out to such an extent as to endanger the lives of their fellow creatures. I take into consideration the state of health of the woman, and also the fact that you, Stammers, endeavoured to get him out the moment your attention was drawn to his danger. But I am bound to pass a sentence which I hope will act as an example, which is that you severally be imprisoned with hard labour for six calendar months. What? <laughs> six months? Is this just for Stammers? No, for both of them. What? Yep. Six, six months. months. Hard labour. Yeah. I I wonder if it's mainly because um they didn't intend to. It's kind of a bit like maybe reducing it to manslaughter in a way. But yeah, six months it sounds. Yeah, but still six months is for manslaughter is ridiculous. Yeah, it does seem very light for these times as well, when you know they were mm. hung for for much less of a crime. But anyway, the prisoners were then removed, Mrs. Smith being in an almost fainting state. The court then adjourned. So, guilty. Mm. Well, good. Uh, six months. I mean, it's not really long enough. But then I guess she'd served a bit more because she'd been, she didn't get bail, did she? That's true. Yeah. Did have to spend some time. So with she her. would have had, yeah. yeah. Whether they took into account time served in those days, I'm not sure. But, mm. um, yeah, but at least they were found guilty. At least there was some, well, yeah. some small justice for Dummy's death. Yeah, at least Dummy, yeah, Dummy mm. got a bit of justice. Would you like to hear a bit about the aftermath of this incident? Oh, yes, please. Right, well, as you probably have um, taken on board by now, the reputation of Sybil Headingham residents took quite a hit. They were <laughs> seen as backward. Wow. A few weeks after the trial... The rector of Sybil Headingham sent a letter to the Times defending the intelligence of the inhabitants, <laughs> which, as I said, took quite a beating worldwide, not just locally. Like... Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't need to go just to the Times. It needs yeah. to, that needs to go global. <laughs> yeah, the world was talking about these idiots at Sybil Headingham. <laughs> <laughs> so the rector of Sybil Headingham sent this letter. Sir. I hope that in justice to myself and other residents within the parish of Sybil Headingham, you will kindly insert a few remarks with reference to the case of manslaughter tried at the last Chelmsford Assizes and reported in the columns of your widely circulated journal. Too much commendation cannot possibly be bestowed on Mr. Falk for the pains which he has taken in bringing to punishment the perpetrators of so wanton an attack upon a poor and afflicted old man. But at the same time, it would be most unfair that the impression, certainly erroneous, should get abroad that there were not many other persons in the parish who regarded with horror and detestation the gross outrage committed on the night of the 3rd of August. I therefore feel called upon to assure the public through the columns of your newspaper that a subscription will be entered into among the parishioners whereby the expenses of this trial will be defrayed. 
Now, I don't understand why he thinks that's a good thing. Mm. How's that helping things? No. Like, does he mean like so that people go, oh, at least the county hasn't had to pay the costs or something? I'm not, I'm not sure mm. why that would be a good thing. Furthermore, perhaps I shall be only justified in adding that as soon as I had learnt of the treatment which the poor old man had received, I hastened to the spot that I spent the greater part of the hour. <laughs> no one mentioned him at trial, though, did they? <laughs> no. Where have you been all this time? Exactly. Well, he hastened to the spot, apparently, and they spent the greater part of the afternoon in administering to him consolation that I went myself to the surgeon to see whether I should be justified in having the sufferer removed to the union, that I then procured the cart for him and saw him placed in it, and moreover, that with the assistance of the superintendent of police, I went to every house in the village where I thought I might gain sufficient information to lead to a warrant being issued against the aggressors in this most disgraceful affair. As Mr. Falk had heard of the attack early in the morning, and had been with the poor old man previously to my arrival. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. I just don't know if I believe him so much. Uh, anyway, and like a good Samaritan, administered comfort to him. And as he had, moreover, in the capacity of guardian, sent for the superintendent of police, we thought it advisable, after due consideration, that the summons should be issued in his name. So basically... I played as much of a part helping him as Mr. Falk, but we said he could take the credit because, you know, he's he's the <laughs> on the board of guardians. But at the same time, there is scarcely a man in the parish who will not, I believe, readily come forward to prevent the burden of the expense falling upon his shoulders. Ah, so I guess Falk maybe had to pay for the cost because he bought the case on or something, I guess. Mm. May I add one word more? In spite of the stigma which has been cast on the parish of Sybil Heddingham from the publication of so unfortunate a catastrophe, I fearlessly challenge any person unprejudiced and capable of judging to visit the poor in their cottages, to inspect the schools within the place, and to observe the general tone of the parish. And I do not hesitate for a moment to pronounce an opinion that such a person will arrive at the conclusion that in regard to intelligence, civility and general good conduct the much maligned inhabitants of civil headingham are considerably above rather than below the average <laughs> so they're, not all, they're not all that bad come on come and have a look come and see wow during the eight years that poor old dummy resided in this place he was treated with the greatest kindness both by the rich and the poor and nothing ever occurred to cause the slightest apprehension that his end would have been so tragical. I am, sir, yours obediently, the rector of Sybil Hellingham. See, it's weird, though, that, that Sybil was brought in such disrepute because Emma, as far as I'm concerned, is wholly to blame for this whole shenanigans. <laughs> and she's from Ridgewell. So why was not Ridgewell brought down? Like, that's where she was. And she brought her business to Sybil to so, say... I think that's a bit unfair. Well, really. you bring up an excellent point, my dear Claire, because the vicar of Ridgewell, ah. <laughs> Francis T. Hurst, also mm. wrote to the newspapers, uh, but he took a different approach. <laughs> 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 this was printed in the London Evening Standard on the 23rd of March, 1864. Sir, it must have been with feelings of surprise and pain 
that the many readers of your paper discovered from the extraordinary case of witchcraft, the lamentable ignorance and credulity existing even in the present age. Their surprise may perhaps be lessened if they hear that there is not any school in the parish of Ridgewell where Emma Smith, the woman who believed that she was bewitched, has lived from infancy. <laughs> oh, she's not from Ridgewell originally, so it's not. No, no, she's saying? no. She she's oh. saying she's she's lived there a lot. Oh, he's saying it's because there's no school, so you won't be oh, surprised to hear that we've got no school right. here. So, what do you expect? Oh, what do you expect from a village of no school? Like this is what happens. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Such, however, is the case. Although the population amounts to seven hundred and ninety-five. I have recently entered on the incumbency of Ridgewell and in conjunction with others am endeavouring to raise the necessary funds for remedying so serious a deficiency. As there is not any resident landlord and the inhabitants are, with few exceptions, extremely poor, unusual difficulties have arisen. I venture, therefore, to ask you to lend your powerful aid to make known our case in the hope that a sympathising and charitable public may be willing to assist in extending to the poor of this parish the inestimable, the inestimable, the inestimable, the inestimable <laughs> blessings of education. I am, etc. the vicar of Ridgewell. Wow. So Sybil Vicar's like, we're, we're a good place, really. Please forgive us. And Ridgewell's like, look, we're really poor. It's awful place. Come and help us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> give us give us some money so we can build a school. So this won't make happen. us better. Exactly. <laughs> All right, and his appeal succeeded Brilliant. because only a few weeks later he wrote to the Morning Post, "Sir, may I ask you to acknowledge the receipt of the following sums towards the erection of a school at Ridgewell, viz. Mister Daniel, yeah, Mister Daniel C Griffin." Gave five pounds, five shillings. A friend, two pounds. SG, ten shillings. EC, one pound. <laughs> I am certain. I feel like they're quite enough to make a school. I don't know how much a school cost. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nor do I. But but, um... but he must have managed to raise the funds as a school was built in Ridgewell the next year, 1865. Incredible. So you said at the beginning about how you think Sybil Headingham School is owned by the church, or at least the lands mm. are owned by the church. Obviously, like, played a big part in English schools. The church tended to open a lot of them. A new mm. school was built 100 years later in 1965. Her mm. school building was converted to private homes in 1972, but they still stand. So if you go to Ridgewell School now... It's on one side of the road, and the old school is on the other side of the road. It's amazing. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so some good mm. came of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so how do you feel about the past inhabitants of Sybil Headingham and, to a lesser extent, Ridgewell? Well, I don't think it has any, um, any what's the word? That one? Bearing? Um, any bearing. Yeah, any. I don't think it has any bearing on the residents that are currently living in Sybil, as far as I'm aware. Mm. Um, yeah, but you don't know what's what's going on behind closed doors. <laughs> or, well, <laughs> yeah, I think you need to check your Facebook page for um, any witchcraft yeah. 
was it which circles yeah. gaining momentum <laughs> i'll keep an eye out watch out <laughs> then that's the story of the sybil hadingham witch amazing and it was a man who would have thought exactly yeah you'd think it would just be some old crone mind you was yeah. emma smith the witch in this case Ooh. well maybe she was oh so there you go sybil hadingham witch incredible well thank you for sharing with me i thoroughly enjoyed it you're very welcome claire if you enjoy listening to this podcast i'd really appreciate it if you tell all your friends and family about it thank you and see you next time